All right, let's look at Romans chapter 1. It starts in verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so good to give it to us. We thank you that it is all truth, that it is without error, that it's infallible, inerrant, that we can stand on it in confidence because it's your word, not ours. We thank you, God, that you've blessed us with children. We ask God for their salvation, for each one of them, Lord, young and old, that you would give them, Lord, the gift of faith. I pray for the parents here that they'd have wisdom and knowledge in raising their kids and ministering and shepherding their hearts, God. I pray you'd give them a vision, a long-term vision. Let them take the tough road, the narrow path. That's the one that leads to life. Lord, I pray, God, that you would fill us with your Spirit to walk in your ways, to know you, to hear from you, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the pulpits today across America, across the world, that truth would go forth. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to change lives by means of the good news of Jesus Christ. Therein lies salvation, and there is no salvation apart from Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are good to save us, and that you are mighty to save us, and that no one lies beyond your reach. So reach those that it seems like can't be reached. God, save those that seem like they can't be saved. Do your work, God, and I pray, Father, that you would use us to save those people. Use us as the instruments to reach them with the truth of the gospel. Let us be your mouthpiece as it is for your glory. Amen. Well, with this being Reformation Week and the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the church door, I thought I'd start with the story of Luther and remind you briefly about that. The church, uh, sadly, had veiled the gospel, and Martin Luther, I won't go into the whole story, but ended up as a monk and wasn't really content with that, had a very scholarly bent to him, and so he ended up going to school, found himself teaching in a school setting, and had taught through a couple different books, but he started going through the book of Romans. And he came across the verses that we just read. Those verses are quoting from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. It's cited three times in the New Testament. And this verse, particularly verse 17, it stopped Luther in his tracks. He was dumbfounded. He couldn't understand it. And he began, really, for the first time. If you you read even just a short biography on him, you realize 
how much he struggled and was fearful of the wrath of God being poured out on him. And he had a very works-based mentality. And one theologian said, Luther began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was the righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not those who would achieve it actively, but that would receive it by faith and by which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. Luther realized that it wasn't a works-based salvation, that it was God doing the work, and that Luther was the passive recipient of the righteousness. Now, part of the, the, the thing that tripped Luther up, at the time, the Bible was written in, in Latin, and a lot of people could speak it and read it. Um, the, the word for that Latin version is called the Vulgate. It comes from our word, vulgar, which originally just meant like common. So they wanted it in the common, the vulgar, or the common tongue. But what ended up happening is that eventually no one was speaking Latin, so then the Word of God became inaccessible again. But here, when he's reading that word, uh, it's the Latin word justificara. That I at the beginning turns into a J. It kind of morphs into a J. So if you, you put the J on it, it's justificara. It's where we get our word justification. But that's two different words that kind of are put together. The justice word, which means justice or righteousness, but that infinitive is fakara, which means to make. So it's to make righteousness. And so they misunderstood this doctrine based on them misunderstanding this word because people believe that the doctrine of justification back then is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and other things, makes unrighteous people righteous. He makes them unrighteous from unrighteousness to a righteousness. But that's really not the true doctrine of justification, if you understand it. It sounds somewhat right on the surface a little bit, but God doesn't take us and make us righteous. That's really what we might call sanctification. Sanctification. Justification is completely different. Sanctification, we're working with God. He's working in us and through us, right? We get that Philippians, Philippians 1 verse where it talks about we're working out our salvation, but it's God who's working in us. It's really a great verse. We're working with God in our sanctification to be conformed to his image. But justification is completely different. It's wholly and solely the work of God. And the church at that time had confused that, and you end up, if you end up going that route, you end up with a works, righteousness, salvation. So Luther was a well-trained scholar. He knew not only the Latin, but he also knew the Greek. So he went to the Greek. And that's where... It was originally he found that word from the Latin, that justificara, he found the word dikaios, dikaios, which was clear that it didn't mean make righteous, but rather regard as righteous and count as righteous and declare as righteous. See, none of us are righteous in our own strength, on our own. We're fallen. We're depraved. There's none righteous. The Bible literally says that in Romans 3. There's none righteous. No, not one. So God can't just like make us righteous. He has to, it has to be a declaration. He has to count us as righteous. If we go with the make us righteous, it turns into us trying to do something to earn our salvation. That's where Luther found himself. 
over and over and over. It was a big struggle for him. In fact, it was to the point where he was just, I mean, he'd wake up in the middle of the night concerned over one particular sin that he had done and would go wake up his superior to confess that sin, afraid that the wrath of God was going to fall upon him. And he said, Luther said this, when I discovered this truth, I was born again of the Holy Spirit and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. When it comes to salvation, it is entirely and solely the work of God. He looks at us and declares us righteous. How does he do that? Because of the work of his son, Jesus. That is how. Jesus lives the perfect life. He pays the penalty. The debt is paid. All right, you got a debt, you got a debt, you got a debt, I got a debt. We all got debts. But Christ pays the debt. He's the debt payer. So if the debt is paid, and it's paid for you and you and you, through Christ's sacrifice, then God can look at you, and even though you're guilty, He can declare you righteous. He can declare you innocent. Why? Because someone else paid the debt. Someone else paid the price. Luther called it the justitia aleanum, the alien righteousness or the foreign righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to somebody else. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness, and we get his righteousness. Here's the thing, this gospel that Luther, he really rediscovered it. It was there all along, but he rediscovered the true gospel, and this gospel, this same gospel, is still alive today. Do you believe this? Like, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? Okay. Because here's the thing. The local church stands or falls with the gospel. And because the gospel is alive, the church can stand firm. A church, look, a church can be missing many things. It can't be missing the gospel. So if the local church loses the gospel, it's really no longer a church. I mean, you take the gospel out of the church, I mean, you, got, you might got four walls, you might got people, you might have services, you might have music, you might even have a sermon, but it's not a church. It will have lost its saltiness, and the light will have been snuffed out. Every believer here, every believer must guard the purity and truth of the gospel in his or her own church. You have to guard it. If it gets corrupted, if it gets uh, impurified, it affects not just you, not just your family, it affects the whole church. And then it affects whoever that church is reaching because they're reaching people with a false gospel. Now, friends, we have to be careful this doesn't happen in our own lives because every one of us, in a sense, is like a little church. 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so my question is, where's your saltiness at? Where's, because we can lose our own saltiness if we're not careful. One time on a family vacation, we were in a, up in Michigan. This was years ago. My sister was like probably 12 at the time or something. She decided to make chocolate chip cookies. Now, I love chocolate chip cookies. 
I could see her making them. Then I could see her baking them. And I was like watering at the mouth to just like bite into one. And they come out of the oven and my mom like makes us wait for them to cool off. I bit into one. I about spit that thing out. (laughs) What was the problem? My sister learned that day the difference between a teaspoon of salt and a tablespoon of salt. And where it called for teaspoons, she used tablespoons. It had too much salt. But honestly, we kind of need to be like those cookies. Like salty. All right, not as in the slang that some people use it today, like sassy or whatever, but in the biblical sense of being salt. All right, people should be around us, and they should get a good, strong taste of Jesus from us. Like, how is our conversational Jesus language going when we're around believers and unbelievers? Are we being the salt? Here's the thing, friends. The church is unique. The church is unique. And we forget that the church is unique. Now, try to form an organization and try to make it work. One of the things that makes the local church unique is that it's not just a social club. It's not a gathering of the 20-somethings or the 40-somethings. It's not a gathering of senior citizens. It's not a gathering of chess players or quilt makers or basketball players. No, our commonality, unlike a social club, which has a particular bent, but our commonality is Jesus. So that means we can be all sorts of different things. We can have all sorts of different interests. We can have all sorts of different hobbies. We can all be all sorts of different ages, all sorts of different skin color, but we should be able to come together as the body of Christ and be a church. Are you hearing me? So sometimes it's like, oh, there's too many young people in the church or there's too many old people in the church. Like, we're supposed to be able to do church the right way is with all of us coming together unified. And maybe you're a whole lot older than me or a whole lot younger than me, but that really shouldn't matter when it comes to the gospel. Okay, the gospel, think back to Ephesians 2, like it breaks down the barriers. That that is talking about Jew and Gentile, but it breaks down really all barriers, social barriers, culture barriers, age barriers, all those demographics, it breaks them down. And each one of us here should be able to be in communion and fellowship with any other believer that's at this church. That is unique. That is a testimony to Christianity. The commonality is Jesus. So here's the thing. We're in this together. And when this church is unified as it's called to be, our unity speaks volumes to the world. You're like, I don't know if I fit in. Yes, you do. You're a believer. If you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, you belong here. And there's a place for you here. And friends, sometimes sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. And sometimes I think we can get so caught up in the things of this world, not even necessarily in a bad way, we just end up getting distracted by different things. But we need to kind of be restored a little bit in the, in the Lord. Look at Psalm 23.
It starts out, you've heard it before, but we're going to read it. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now some of us probably just need to camp there for a little bit. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Friends, you've got a great shepherd, and he's taking care of you. And he will continue to take care of you. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He's, he's going to get you exactly what you need. Maybe not what you want, but what you need. Then look at verse 3. He restores my soul. The Lord is the restorer of souls. Your version might say, he refreshes my soul. That's good too. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What's that saying? Like the Lord takes us where he wants us to be. He keeps us on the path of righteousness Ultimately, for his namesake, for his glory. He's doing that. He takes his bride and makes it beautiful to reflect on him, his glory. Then look at Acts chapter 3. This is Peter speaking. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. It says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And I think that's important because we've got to put this verse with the one that's coming, which is what I want to emphasize. But there's repentance. There's turning away from sin. Look at verse 20. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and then may he send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And some of us, we, just, we need to have our souls restored. We need to be refreshed a little bit. And that comes through spending time in the Word. But we've got to make sure we keep that first part of verse 19 to repent. All right? And there needs to be repentance in our time with the Lord. When we're praying, we need to be coming humbly before Him. We need to be seeking Him. We need to turn back to Him. And sometimes, I don't know about you all, but sometimes when I'm having my quiet time and reading my Bible, I'll... I'll like, come across a verse, and I've, I've read that verse, I don't know, 50, 100 times before. But for whatever reason, that time, the Lord kind of illuminates it to me. And it just kind of overwhelms me at times. It's like the one verse that I needed to read for that day and for that moment. It happened actually the other week as I was preparing a sermon. I saw this one verse, and I just, it's like I took, took off my glasses and I just sat back, and I was like, Wow, that's powerful. And I just kind of chewed and meditated on that verse and how good God is and how that verse applied to me. We need to do that with the Word. We kind of need to let it wash over us. Ephesians 5 talks about that. Let it get a hold of you and do its work. I want you to notice something because we've been working in Acts a little bit, so I want you to turn to Acts 1.
It says in verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. I want you to notice what it says in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the original command, if you think about it, was to stay. Don't depart from Jerusalem. Wait for the Spirit. But what happens once the Spirit comes? That's where the Matthew 28 comes in. Go. Like, you've been empowered now. So go. Go is the operative act where all the nations. Look at Matthew 28. You guys there? Notice what it says. It's easy to overlook this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now we know that. We probably got it memorized. But here's why I think that's important. The early church, it took the disciples a little bit to kind of figure that out. It wasn't Paul's idea. Hey, we're going to, you know what? This is a great gospel message. I know it's really for the Jews, but I'm taking it to the Gentiles. No. Like right here. Before Acts even starts, Jesus is telling them, go to all the nations. And if you think of the Gospel of Matthew for a second, I mean, even with, in chapter 2, you got the coming of the Magi, right? So they're like foreigners, and they're coming in. I mean, even the, the idea, like God's calling his people, right? Plus, Jesus' mission, it includes this centurion, a Roman. It includes this uh, gathering demoniac. It includes the Canaanite woman. I mean, so we see Jesus' mission, even though at times he'll be like, well, I'm, right now I'm focused on the Jews. But even we see the glimpses of his ministry, it's, it's, it's broader than that. It's broader than that. <clears throat> but what have we done with the Great Commission? I mean, we've taken the Great Commission and made it the Great Omission. We've taken the Great Commission and made it the Great Omission. Friends, the Gospel is not dead. The gospel is alive. It is not dead. It's not stale, outdated. It's not reached its expiration date. It's alive and well. And we need to open our eyes to the work that God is doing here in the States and throughout the world. I mean, if you just look at China, it's estimated that 10,000 people a day are coming to faith in Christ. 10,000 people. And sometimes we're like, what? where's God working at? Well, apparently in China. 10,000 people a day. And in the year 2000, there were 12 times as many Christians in Indonesia as there were in 1900. 12 times as many. That's one of the largest, if not the largest, Muslim country in the world. And by the numbers, Christianity is growing faster in Iran than it is anywhere, percentage-wise. So what's our problem? We see the church in Western terms. And we see it in American terms as if the kingdom of God rises or falls with the United States. 
And we kind of banked the last presidential election like, oh, if the other person got in part, like, it's over. It's over. Like as if the gospel rests on who gets into office or not. I mean, if they say that in China, they would have given up hope, the believers there, a long time ago. All right? So, I mean, this communist regime, the gospel is flourishing. 10,000 people a day. So it's a myth that Christianity is declining across the globe. It's a total myth. All right, some more stats. 1900, there's only 9 million Christians in all of Africa. 1900. By 2000, 335 million. Latin America, there were a mere 50,000 Protestants in 1900. Today, there are more than 64 million. Most of them just since the 60s. You're just talking 50, 60 years. So the gospel is alive. It's well, it's flourishing. What are we seeing in America? Some of what we're seeing with the falling away is people realizing that it's not really cool to be a Christian anymore. So we're, we're seeing cultural Christianity fall to the wayside. We're seeing people realize, well, it's not very advantageous for me to be a Christian as much as it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. That's where you made social connections. That's where you made business connections. That's where you made political connections. I mean, and now it's a lot more costly if you call yourself a Christian, if you're going to stand for Christ. There's a price to be paid. It wasn't the case in America for many, many, many years. So God gives them this command... Stay first, then it comes to go. And I want you to see what happens in Acts chapter 8. This is right after the martyr of Stephen. Pick it up in verse 59 of Acts chapter 7. You see, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. What ends up happening? God uses the persecution of believers to spread the gospel. Now if you want evidence or proof that God takes the bad and uses it for good. I mean, here's a great example. They start persecuting them. That's bad. What does God do? He, I mean, some of them were still staying. They hadn't gotten the message to go yet. Well, I wonder if that's kind of like us sometimes. Right? We're supposed to go. Have we really gotten the message to go? Is God going to have to do something to really wake us up and get us going? Apparently, for some of the early believers, he had to do that. They're still in Jerusalem. So what does it say? They're scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They get, they get spread out. And what do they do? Fall away from Christianity? No. They take the message with them. They finally go. And they spread the gospel. Sometimes for us, we can end up discouraged with our lack of seeing fruit, with our lack of seeing God do things. Sometimes I just think that's because we're not seeing things the way God sees them, honestly. Sometimes we want to be the 
the last person in the line of someone's salvation. Sometimes I think it's because we're being faithful to the gospel and we're not watering it down. And the gospel, I mean, it's a call to come and, and lay down your own life, really. Count the cost. But listen to me, friends. Discouragement is one of Satan's favorite arrows. It is one of his favorite arrows, and he will shoot it at you time and time and time again. And he'll shoot one at you, and you'll be a little discouraged. You might think you're pulling out. He'll shoot another one and another one and another one. And you can end up in a pit of discouragement or a tailspin of discouragement. So what do we do? Look at Psalm 27. I like how the NES says it. It says, and I think the NIV picks up on this too, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So, we despair without the Lord. With the Lord, there's no need to despair. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Friends, we see the goodness of the Lord, and we will continue to see it, and one day we'll see it in its fullness with Him face to face. So, that despair... That discouragement can be wiped to the side. 2 Corinthians 4, look there. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So what's the jar of clay? Us, right? Or the jar of clay. Notice what he says. We have this treasure, right? The work that God's done. We have the gospel in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That what God does through us is not because, it's not because of us. What's so special about a little jar of clay? And then he goes on. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So yes, are there going to be challenges? Will there be afflictions? Will there be persecutions? Will we be struck down at times? Absolutely. Many of us can empathize well with the Apostle Paul here. Look what he goes on to say. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We're bearing witness to the grace of God to people 
when we walk faithfully through whatever God brings into our path. He goes on, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Whatever God's doing in our life, whatever he's letting us walk through, whatever he's bringing into our lives, it is ultimately for his greater glory. And here, Paul is saying, it's so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. Yes, in part for our benefit, but also for the benefit of other believers and also for the benefit of unbelievers. When people see you go through some challenging thing, and they see you walk, sure, stumbling at times, sometimes even falling. But they see, well, they don't really see it, but the Lord's picking you up, and they're seeing the result of that. That's a testimony. That's a testimony to God being manifested in your life. The gospel is given to each one of us. We're the gospel bearers. So we're supposed to take that message and we're supposed to go with it. Friends, the church, the church, us, that's God's plan A. We're the ones to take the gospel out. And there is no plan B. We're plan A. God entrusts that to us. Think about that for a second. He trusts this most precious valuable message to us. Will we be faithful with the message that's been entrusted to us to take it and to go? The gospel changes lives. There is no doubt of that. Most of us here could raise our hands and testify that the gospel changes lives. If we are faithful to keep going, to keep preaching, lives will be touched. I mean, that's, a, that's really, a, I mean, that's a promise from the scriptures. I don't know about you, but my God's pretty big. He's not just going to send me on fruitless missions. He's going to, wherever he's sending me, it's going to be fruitful. Because God is fruitful. And he wants us to bear fruit. So if we're going on a mission, and if we're staying on mission, we know that the mission sender will make that mission prosperous. It will go well. It will bear fruit. We might not have the limited sight to see it at times, but God's doing a work. He's working 10,000 different ways. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. My, my last year at, at college, like we were doing all sorts of outreach on our floor, having pizza outreaches, spending time with people, all sorts of stuff, like zero fruit. And we're being faithful. Zero fruit. All right? I graduate. I come back to St. Louis. But one of my friends, was, was, he was a junior that year. He's a senior the next year. He decides to stay on that floor and continue the work. Guess what happens? Like a revival breaks out on that floor. Person after person after person after person getting saved. Now, what if, what if we would have just given up on that? What if my friend would have just moved on? No. Faithful to what he felt God called him to do. And he carried on the work. The foundation had been laid the year before. And now it was time to do some reaping. 
And there's, there's lasting fruit. To this day, I still see it going on. I see little bits and pieces from those people on Facebook. God's done. That was like 20 years ago. I'm getting old. The work's still going on. Like that's lasting fruit that occurred. A little mini revival on the fourth floor. Gillette Hall, God did something. And he's still doing it. We got to have the long-term view. We're going and we're being sent. We got to be faithful to go. We trust the Lord. If he has sent us on a task, he's going to take care of everything else. It's kind of like Abraham. Just go, right? Not some detailed map. Go. Trust me. Go. That's what we got to do. Trust. Go. We take that gospel with us. We share it with people. So we carry it on. We are the salt and we are the light. We can't stay any longer. We can't remain any longer. We got to go. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are the ones who take your message of truth to others. And Lord, we thank you for the ones that were faithful to share it with us. A parent, a friend, a teacher, thank you for their faithfulness. Bless them for it, God. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful with the message. Let us be faithful to go with the message. We thank you, Lord, that you use us, the jars of clay. On the outside, it doesn't seem like anything special, Lord. But in your sight, we're quite precious. Let each one of us know that. We are precious in your sight. And Lord, use us. Use us, Father, to take your message to go to the nations. Let us start with our next-door neighbors, with our co-workers, with our friends. And spread it out from there, God. And we ask that you would bless our faithfulness. We ask you to be gracious to let us see some of that fruit. It may be a work, Lord, that you're doing in us and through us for your glory. Amen.